holding Zoe's tiny body against my chest in that neonatal ICU ward, it was as if time stood still. Rue lay in the room down the passage, recovering, and for a moment I was alone with a newborn. Zoe was still hooked up to a host of machines as they worked to clear her lungs. Wires, tubes, beeps, the hum of a hospital. But as we sat there, skin to skin, for a moment, we were invincible. Nothing was going to come between us. No challenge was too big or too scary. We were off on a great adventure. I remember closing my eyes and resting my lips on the top of her head, you know? It was so comfortable. I remember thinking, this is what I was meant to be doing with my life. I was meant to be Zoe's dad. Zoe's dad. I will never forget saying to her that day that she might not always get what she wants, but she will always have what she needs. The fact that doctors were saying she may never be independent or achieve were the furthest things from my mind. I was all in. I had no idea what I was in for. This story began over four years ago, and I'm only just beginning to tell it now. Because Zoe keeps rewriting paragraphs and defying doctors' predictions for her life. Having a daughter with special needs has opened our eyes, our ears, and our hearts tenfold. Zoe is my inspiration, and I hope through her story and the stories shared by my guests, we can motivate one another to defy the odds. I want Unstoppable to become a community of tenacious people, and I hope through the podcast we'll get the opportunity to share tips and tricks with one another. In this episode of Unstoppable, I chat with Elma Smith. We first met in 2006 when she was a contestant in Miss Marty Land, and I was the show's choreographer. Yeah, there's plenty you don't know about me yet. We later worked together on air at MFM 92.6. Elma received her law degree from Stellenbosch University and later enrolled for a postgraduate degree in journalism at the University of the Witwatersrand. Elma has accomplished so much in the male-dominated sports media space since then, including coverage of the Rugby World Cup and the Cricket World Cup in 2019. But how did she get there? We chat about various aspects of her jam-packed career, both in front of and behind the microphone, the dangers of comparison, and of course, building your self-confidence. I hope you enjoy this episode. From Uncover Extraordinary Media, this is Unstoppable. Let the journey begin. The words cool, calm, and collected are some of the words I think of when your name is mentioned. I also think of the girl who shaved her head, the girl who DJed in student bars, the girl who strutted on the catwalk, and the girl who packed up her stuff and moved to Johannesburg with everything she could have been a car on the promise of a TV presenting job. Independent, forthright, 
confident and generous are a few of the other words I think of. So I want to know, based on that track record, at I think 25 years old, how confident were you as you boarded the plane to New Zealand, effectively becoming the first South African woman to report on rugby for Supersport? Oh, those words you used were so nice, but that doesn't sound at all like the noise inside my head. (laughs) Um, It shows you how deceptive uh, all of this looking at things from the outside in can be. When I boarded the flight to New Zealand in 2011, I was a wreck of nerves, of imposter syndrome, of not knowing what on earth I was actually going to be doing on a day-to-day basis. I had so little um, an indication in terms of production, in, like w- what was I actually going to do. Um, I just knew that my life would belong to this project for the next eight weeks. And, and I knew that I was, was pretty unprepared because I'd had a lot of presenting experience, but the little experience that I had with Supersport in the lead up to the tournament for about three months, covering things like Craven Week and popping in on shows here and there, I realized that this was an entirely different kettle of fish and uh, Supersport has a very different way of working in terms of the production side, so the actual workflow. So I was I was very intimidated. And then, of course, I had received from June to the point that I departed in September a load of support, but also plenty of hate. Not only from men who didn't think that there was any need for a woman to host rugby, uh, but also from people who thought that, A, I was going to be fulfilling the role of a Nick Malatnas Buddha-style analyst, which clearly I wasn't experienced enough to do, but also clearly I wasn't going to be doing. Uh, so I think there was a bit of a gap in, in people's understanding of what my job was and why exactly it was important to bring a woman into the conversation. But then also there were plenty of women who had a cousin or a sister or a best friend who had entered themselves and who didn't think that I was the one that they wanted to represent us all. Um, which is also entirely fair. Like I'm totally down with the fact that you wanted your sister to win or you think that you would have been, you know, a more deserving candidate or that you thought, oh, well, you know, she's just so young and so cute. She definitely doesn't have the kahunas to hold her own in this audience because I wasn't sure whether I had what was needed <laughs> to, to do the job. I think the thing that probably stood me um, in good stead was the fact that I was 25. It was the fact that I was um, young enough to think that I can do anything, inexperienced enough to believe that I can tackle anything. I think as as, um, as we get older, we tend to realize how little we know and mm-hmm. um, how uh, much of a clue we lacked when we were younger. And so sometimes it's the best thing that can happen to you is falling in the deep end and doing so at a young age. And then doing the best with what you have where you are in that moment. So would you say that you are comfortable with fear or or maybe comfortable with failure? I am entirely uncomfortable with failure, which is why I am still a nervous wreck before every show recording. I'm doing a weekly show for the ICC at the moment. And I was trying to explain to someone who called me the other day and I was quite harsh with them over the phone. I was like, I can't talk now. I'm busy preparing for a show. 
why are you calling me now? You know, like really irritated. Um, and I, I called them back afterwards and I was trying to explain to them that in the mornings before a show recording, I am, I'm, I'm doing every bit of prep, every inch of kind of focus goes into, into the project. And I think that that um, determination to not fail is what essentially often has carried me through. But I have definitely got a bigger appetite for risk than I think many of my friends and certainly my sister and my mom. So I know from my loved ones and their perspective on things, when I started working in TV at 21 for MCAR, I remember um, my sister came to visit me after I'd been living in Joburg for a few months. And she sat in the control room of the live TV show that I was hosting, which is like sitting inside the engine of a car. It's noisy. There are loads of things happening. People are talking over each other the whole time. It's, and, and all of that goes into my earpiece. So the penny dropped for her. She heard what I was hearing and she went, whoa. And um, after the show, I, I usually, we usually went for a drink, the, the crew together. I said to her, let's go for a drink. And she's like, my stomach really hurts can we go home now I'm I that was really stressful and she just had to listen to us work and she was feeling yeah. stressed and she had carried that much of the panic with her and I just come out of the fire feeling you know obviously elated so I do think that I have a greater appetite for risk and that I often get bored in safe spaces but at the same time I wouldn't say that it's effortless for me it's obviously just what makes me feel alive yeah yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, can you maybe tell me about a time when you almost gave up then, if there has been such a time, and mm. how maybe that, that made you feel and what you did instead of that? So when I came back from the Rugby World Cup in 2011, it was a weird space because of where rugby and super sports coverage of rugby, but also broadcasting was. And I think it's easy for us to forget now, but I remember having kind of massive disagreements with our team leader in New Zealand about Twitter. Uh, there was a there was a case at that World Cup where a Samoan player um, tweeted a, a whole long list of grievances with World Rugby. I was obviously of the opinion that we as South African broadcasters, the Springboks, are playing Samoa um, later on in the tournament. A and B. What happens on Twitter is relevant because at 5FM at that stage, we were already doing a lot of user-generated content. At MCAR, we were already relying on a lot of our audience to weigh in and kind of giving them a platform. But this was entirely unheard of on Supersport. So there was a very different frame of mind and things have obviously changed a lot since then. But then when I came back in 2012, I worked on Varsity Cup. Uh, Curry Cup only starts much later in the year. They're obviously not not using me for Springbok tests. And so I was in this weird vacuum within the Supersport environment where a lot of people, viewers from the outside, was like, oh, she's the girl from Supersport. But I didn't have a weekly thing. Right. After kind of speaking to a few people in the environment, I realized that no one there is going, where can we slot this person in? They didn't start the search for a female presenter in 2011, I think, with the idea that that person would then automatically transition into A, B, and C role. It was, we're looking for someone to take to New Zealand. After that, we'll see. 
until I started emailing the head of production. And I said, can I get a meeting? Can I get a meeting? It was hard to get a meeting. And, and then I just one night decided, you know what? I'm going to send them solutions. So I sent this person a long email with a variety of problems that only I can solve for them. Wow. Um, and obviously this is incredibly presumptuous, <laughs> presumptive of me to go, I'm the solution to your problems. But I went and, and looked at everything that Supersport was putting out in terms of rugby and tried to imagine how I could contribute with my skill set and with the audience that I was already speaking to, which was a much younger audience, and using what I know and what I believe in and what I would be proud of contributing. And so the idea of me um, running polls on Twitter during Boots and All of me doing trivia questions that would have live engagement on social media alongside a, a live call-in show like Super Rugby. That's all stuff that I then pitched. And suddenly I got calls from producers saying, hi, Alma, so we want to book you on the show to do this, this, and this. And, I, and this was exactly what I then pitched. And so my role as a secondary host, as the touchscreen girl, was born out of my frustration with not clearly having a place to fit in. I, I wasn't impatient with the fact that I wasn't being booked to host these shows. I was more than happy to earn my stripes. What I really wanted was to be on set with people like Gola and Chinga to get a feel for how he does what he does. Because what people don't realize is the big difference between a lot of lifestyle TV, which I'd worked on until then for Kaiknet and Imkar, and even on other channels and Supersport, is Supersport refuses to use autocue. You do not have a script. Okay. So you're hosting an hour or a two-hour show, often flying entirely ad-lib to time. So you have a time. Someone's literally talking in your ear saying you have 30 seconds left on this link, 20 seconds left, 10, 9. And you have to finish on zero regardless of you know what's happening on set. And you have to often change course while you're in a link. And all of this was a lot more challenging because until then, I'd almost exclusively either worked on stuff that was very tightly scripted, timed, and planned, mm. or was pre-recorded. Talk about throwing yourself in the deep end. Yeah. That, well, it was probably the best place to learn. <laughs> that leads me to my next question. Skills that you've spent time improving that have gotten you to the point where you are now. I have a suspicion, if I read it somewhere, or maybe you'd said it to me, that English yes. was really <laughs> not a PowerPoint for you. No, no, number one was learning to speak English. And I've, I think the, the fact that I've been living in Joburg for over a decade now has probably helped the most because my social circle at Stellenbosch was obviously entirely Afrikaans. I got my degree in Afrikaans. I went to an Afrikaans school. And even at MFM and Campus Radio, I did my shows in Afrikaans. And adapting to working and thinking in English is something that I only managed kind of partly because my husband is English speaking and I, I met him when I was 19. So that has helped a lot because I'm obviously practicing and he's correcting me, which grates me no end, but it helps a lot um, because he's a first language English speaker. And then the other thing is having English speaking friends, being in English speaking working environments and then reading a lot. Practicing even the pronunciation of colleagues' names. So at one point I took Zulu lessons because I realized that living in Joburg, um, this would this would definitely make a difference to my life. And also it is my job to be able to pronounce things. Mm. And so I would practice uh, the different clicks, you know, the and the 
and the, mm-hmm. and yes, I couldn't do that until I know this is crazy until I was 30 as a white South African. That's actually scandalous, but I grew up in the free state. I took Sesotho at school. And by the time we moved to the Western Cape where Corsa was the language that you d- did as a third language, I could opt not to do that. I was that far into high school. And the great irony, of course, in what I do is that when I did the aptitude tests in high school, the advice was to stay away from language-based things because apparently my my innate abilities more weighted towards numbers and supposedly actuarial science, but I'm way too much of an extrovert to ever have studied that. So as soon as this guy in the report back at the aptitude test said this to me, I laughed in his face and said, have you met me though? I want to work with people, which means I will need to use language and communicate. And I have had to, yeah. yeah, and I have had to obviously work really hard at sharpening that. And it's, it's an ongoing I mean, ongoing thing. Can you remember maybe whilst growing up choosing a role model, someone you could look to for strength or independence or, or, or that has crafted your confidence maybe that you modeled yourself off of? I always wanted to be Ruda Landmann. Did you? Yes. <laughs> I remember her saying in interviews that the one thing that she always did the most of uh, that she could was prepare, research, prepare, prepare, prepare. And I really, that resonated with me because I've always been such a nerd and such a plichy. Even on the show in the mornings at Jacaranda, Liesl and Martin always laugh at me because if there's a thing we have to email, if there's a thing we have to RSVP, if there's a form that has to be filled in, if there's a permit that needs to be gotten, if there's a structure or a procedure, I'm always there. I'm, I'm I'm the plichy who's there first. So it's always been in my nature to be to be a bit of a nerd in that respect. And the idea that someone like her had the same approach to work, which was if you out-prep the next most talented person, chances are you'll compete and be seen. And that really resonated uh, with me. I also really liked listening to Ilana Africa when she was on 5FM, but on a Sunday afternoon before she went to mid-morning, I think for a year or two. But when she was on the Sunday show, she was such a refreshing accent on a station that had never had space for people uh, who had any kind of Afrikaans background. Now, obviously, her being a black woman didn't register with me at all. Just the fact that she had also studied at Stellenbosch and that she she had this Afrikaans background, she had worked at CakeNet before, that was a leading light for me. Okay, you've mentioned 5FM. And obviously, you've had lots of roles um, mm. through your very young life. Are there instances that you can recall where people shortchanged you and didn't think you should occupy the spaces you were in? How did you overcome any anxieties around what others thought of you as you were coming up in the media space? Because that has a a very strong potential of forming something that sticks with you Mm. that you're constantly having to prove yourself out of. And Mm. I don't get the sense that you're trying to prove yourself out of something. I feel like you've accepted and you're pushing forward. Yeah, I had to really make a bit of a a shift in my own head when I was at university and and people said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to work for 5FM. Obviously, there was actual laughter in my face. Like, (laughs) you can't speak English. You can't work for 5FM. And that was accurate. So 
it's not like now I look back at those people and go, oh, they were so mean, they crushed my dreams. It was very valid advice. Aim for something you can actually maybe do because at the moment you can't. Okay. But then when I moved to Joburg as, as at Wits and I was one of probably about five Afrikaans people on the entire campus, suddenly the reality, the, the, the statistical reality that we've always been told came home for me when I looked around me at VIT and realized that not only was I one of the few white girls here, I was also one of the only Afrikaans ones. And that that is probably true for the widest South Africa. Like if you had to put a cross section of South Africans in the same age group together on a campus anywhere, uh, and they all had to be representative, that would be society. And that is actually what 5FM's listenership as a young market audience probably in real life yep. what it looks like and then when i worked at five as music compiler and i was hosting the show at mcar on the side but mcar wasn't even a blip on the 5fm kind of you know uh, social awareness scale so i was a tv presenter in my own little corner of the world where i was the main kunane but in in real life in real terms at five that was such a small slice of the audience that it, it didn't even register i play i remember the playlisting of make the circle bigger Yes. JR showed him being something that caused a bit of a ripple. It was a song that, in terms of 5FM's format, seemed like a bit of a departure because it wasn't straight up JR, slicker, you know, tr traditional, I want to say, or WHP South African hip hop. It was, it was colored hip hop. And then, and so that was really interesting because it, and it, and it was, and it went viral. And I think that that came first. And then, I added, but this wasn't a unilateral decision. So as the music compiler at five, we had a panel and I pitched it to the panel and they, and they loved it. And, and that was really rewarding for me. I pitched Kuleras Aka by Jack Parrow to the panel and uh, they playlisted it. Yes. And the playlisting of Kuleras Aka was huge for me and the way I looked at myself because Zander Jack Parrow came in for an interview on the Fresh Drive after Kuleras Aka was playlisted. And what he did initially, particularly, was he hand up his Afrikaans accent. I knew that he could speak English pretty well. But as soon as he went on air with Fresh, he was this persona, Jack Parrow. And Jack Parrow has this very, very thick Afrikaans accent. And everyone responded so positively. People thought it was hilarious and obviously he was poking fun at the Afrikaans identity being being somewhat kind of frayed around the edges not entirely cool but quirky and funny it was a bit like Obut from uh, Orkni Snorkni yes and 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 it was so endearing then when I decided to leave uh, five in the beginning of 2010 I left my demo with the program manager a, a demo from campus radio and then some stuff I just recorded of me speaking English but not hiding my Afrikaans accent and not hiding my Afrikaans identity and I said to him I know that you will never sit in a programming strat and go, you know what we need on 5FM? We need an, an Afrikaans white girl. I know that this isn't something that you look uh, at in, in your lineup and go, you know, we need to actually look at someone who speaks to this demographic or to this audience. And that's not mm. who I am. I want mm. to speak to everybody, but I am that quirky, nerdy girl next door, Afrikaans, Macy. And every school has that person. And she's not necessarily Afrikaans, but she's me. 
And then like a few weeks passed before they called me back and offered me a graveyard slot. And the program manager at that stage had gone to UJ and he was like, when you said that it resonated with me because we had those girls at UJ. UJ was a, was a, a formerly kind of more Afrikaans, more white university that had then transformed quite a bit. And they had this really interesting kind of social um, dynamic that, that definitely was, I think a bit, closer to 5FM than Vitz was. And so that was really interesting for me because I think that Jack Parra was on that um, in the creation of Jack Parra helped me recognize that there was a story I could tell and a representative I could be that wouldn't necessarily only speak to my people. I, I, I didn't have to live in that little corner of the world speaking to Afrikaans people in Afrikaans only. Okay. Uh, that's It's so fascinating to hear all of your stories and the ability with which you're able to recall them boggles my mind. I can barely remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And the fact <laughs> that you can recall what happened <laughs> seven or eight years ago, it's just phenomenal. So we're obviously talking about confidence and gaining confidence and each of these things helps you to gain confidence right because you're putting another flag in in the ground so to speak and you're moving forward i recall and this is going to come back to your live television interviews in fact with any broadcast live broadcast there's an element of nervousness mm. and i did a i was covering stuff for super sport but more for swimming specifically and it was the robin island um swim and as you know they swim from the from robin island itself and they swim over to mm. to the beach in bloberg and it required for me to do a link to camera. Everything was fortunately pre-recorded from the island. And then we hopped on the boats, which I thought was really cool because then we watched the rest of the swim and we join everybody when we get to the other side. And long story short, we had difficulty disembarking from our boat because as it turned out, the boat they put, put us on didn't have one of those sort of kick-up rudders that could simply go straight onto the beach. We had to dis disembark from that boat onto Rubber Ducky, then take the, the waves, then still have to climb out that boat, but they couldn't because of the cameras. So then we had a speedboat all the way back to the harbor in, in Granger Bay, Seapoint direction, and then hop in a car and then speed around again because by this time, Natalie DeToy and the like, are finishing the race. Oh. So in all of that, I got horribly seasick. Uh. And now I have to do an interview with someone about winning this really prestigious race. And I am green. Oh. I cannot for the life of me. I honestly, I don't remember how I got through that. Oh. But with that, that sense of nervousness or fear that comes with live broadcast, how does that fear set in for you? Is there something that you do in particular that squashes it so that you can get through the thing? So Kola and Chinga gave me great advice once. He said, buddy, you just need to start well. And because we didn't have scripts at Supersport, you never knew where you were going to go after <laughs> after you've started. Uh, you, okay. were, you, were, you were often off on a, a great big adventure into the unknown, but you can plan the start. That's the one thing you had control over. And so he had developed uh, this theory, which was, buddy, as long as you start well. And that is why I tend to, A, over prep um, okay. as a coping mechanism. Uh, which isn't always great. I, 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 I would caution against over-prepping because you get into your own head a lot. But the other thing is, if I know how I'm going to start, if I know uh, as soon as that red light goes on, you know, I kind of bullet pointed in my head, this is going to happen. Then I'm going to say this, then I'm going to go there, and then this. And then my first question is this. 
And as yeah. soon as you know how to just launch whatever, whatever the format of the show, whatever the, you know, the, the, the demands of the challenges, as long as you can get into either your first VT, the first clip that they play or your first question in an interview or, you know, w- whatever you're doing, I think this applies across broadcasting, but also into doing standing up and doing a presentation in front of people or mm-hmm. pitching something to your boss. It, you just need to know how you are going to start. The, the most important two things out of every pitch, every speech, every show, every presentation is how are you going to start and how are you going to end? The stuff in the mm-hmm. middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it reminds me of a, a radio link, really. Yeah, you know, yeah. Make sure you know how you're going to get out of it. But yeah. in this case, like you say, start strong. Do you, I know you spend a lot of time on social media and again, hats off. It's very impressive. Do you, do you ever catch yourself comparing yourself yeah. to somebody else, oh. Alma? Oh, yeah. Jeez. I mean, I, I don't know who doesn't. <laughs> Well, I mean, because this is the thing, like I'm, from the outside, I'm looking at someone who seems exceptionally confident and, and I believe that you are. And I, th- and I know you believe you have a lot of self-confidence. So what do you do then when you find yourself comparing yourself to somebody else to not let yourself go into those doldrums of going, but I should have been doing this already. Or why didn't I think of that idea? And this person always gets this thing right. And it never goes right for me. Yeah. Um, You've obviously got some coping mechanisms. I think, th- I, think it, I think there are two things you need to do. The one thing is you need to define for yourself before you go onto social media, before you open whatever the app is that is your fix, um, what it is you do that isn't on social media that makes you happy. In my case, I love gardening. I love sewing. I love DIY fixing things in the house. I love making compost, which is entirely ridiculous, but it's something that I really get a kick out of. So having things outside of social media that you know you can turn to when you feel like that. So Mm -hmm. feelings of validation, a bit of a kick about you having a skill or an interest or a fascination. So that's one thing that I know that I turn to when I have gone into that rabbit hole of comparison on social media. There needs to be something in the real world away from your phone that you can turn to. Um, Very good advice. And I think the other thing is also to sometimes when you feel like that, step back a bit and take stock. If you spent all your time trying to be someone else, you wouldn't be able to use the stuff that makes you uniquely and 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 really, you know, powerfully you. I know this sounds like, oh, this is like so cliche, but if I, for example, tried so hard to um, gain the approval of an audience that I was constantly posting bikini photos, for example, I could totally do that. I could, you know what? I could even go on the love your body as it is bikini racket, which is showing my stretch marks and showing my cellulite and going, you're still beautiful after 30. I could totally be that person and, and gain that kind of affirmation from people for my body type. 
but it's never been one of the anchors of who I want to be in the message I want to, to kind of send out into the world. It's never been something that I wanted to build my business on. I've never wanted my body type to be part of any conversation about me. I've only ever wanted people to talk about the content I make and the fact that I don't ascribe to some of society's boundaries and limitations. So I think that you need to also sometimes when you start feeling like the comparison monster is eating your joy, step back and go, you could be anyone really on social media. There's no one, there's no police, there's no social media police saying you can't be a body positive influencer, but you need to be able to be friends with that person that you create. You need to like them enough to be them consistently. And it's so much hard work that it really, I think, isn't sustainable. And that's why you kind of always have to come back to who can I be every day? How can I maintain my persona online? Well, keep it as honest as you possibly can and odds are uh, people will relate to that. But you need to, you need to hold on to some real world stuff. So outside of having a balance sheet of, you know, things you do and what you spend your time on, it, it does require you having the self-knowledge to go, I'm actually not making myself happier here. I need mm -hmm. to put my phone down and go do something mm -hmm. else. So true. We'll be right back. You've said more than once that you uh, are academically inclined. I know the aptitude test said, you know, numbers is where you should be, mm. but I'm pretty sure you've done your fair share of reading. <laughs> uh, books that you like to read, is there a particular genre of reading that you tend to find yourself gravitating towards when you have the free time? Yeah, I'm definitely a nonfiction reader. I mean, I love the girl with the dragon tattoo and the girl who kicked the hornet's nest and the girl who played with fire and that kind of thing for holiday reading and escapism. But generally, I enjoy nonfiction. So autobiographical, motivational. I like, I love an audiobook as well. Hey, shoo, shoo, shoo. I do enjoy a little audiobook, but that's because I drive to work for half an hour in the morning and then half an hour back. And so then you can trot through a book quite nicely. One of the one of the old ones that I re-listened to recently and rediscovered and was just absolutely struck by its timelessness is the age-old Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah, it's a goodie. It's right here on my bookshelf. I think I've only ever gotten halfway through it and I've just never read further. I don't know why that is. It fascinates me that it transcends. It's a hundred years old, basically. It is. And it's, it's weirdly useful still to this day even in yeah. COVID era. So, um, so that's one that I, I rediscovered recently and I really enjoyed. I love, um, Michelle Obama's book and, um, very good, you know, like rugby autobiographies and stuff I enjoy. And then I recently read stop doing that shit by Gary John Bishop or listened oh. to it on audio audiobook as well. Really nice experience because he's the person who reads it, which is great because I feel like there's a different energy to that. You've got lots to choose from then. So my next question is if you were to gift someone mm. a book that you have read, mm. what book would you give? Do you know what I would actually gift? And I got this from someone else. Eat that frog. What? Never heard of it. It's a tiny little book. It's a productivity book. 
So okay. this is obviously, this is so me. <laughs> so me that I would give people a productivity book. But Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy. It's a tiny little book. You can read it on a flight from Joburg to Durban in 45 minutes. All it basically boils down to is it's a great reminder to do the shit you dread the most first. Every single day, every time you go, okay, now I need to tackle some work. Now I need to tackle a project. Now I need to climb this mountain. Eat that frog. Do the stuff you hate the most first. Because then you build such nice momentum. You get such a kick out of ticking that horrid thing off first that the rest of the stuff you keep building momentum you keep building momentum you do the stuff you love last and by the time you're done with your work you're not feeling like way down because you didn't spend the entire day dreading that thing that you hate doing until half an hour before the end of your work day and now you have to rush and cram and stress and do a half-ass job one more question that i'm borrowing from tim ferris and if you haven't listened to his podcast yet okay so you'll be aware of his billboard question basically there's a billboard being put up on the side of the road and you're allowed to slap any message on that the billboard is ginormous of course and johannesburg has plenty of them and the ones that catch your attention are the ones that are sharp or punchy, mm. but they get to you. Mm. So with that in mind, uh, what is the message you put on it? You can be right or you can win. Most often you won't get both. Oh, does that resonate deeply for you? I think that it's probably one of the most useful things I've heard in my entire working life. I heard it a few years ago. And I have seen it demonstrated in so many engagements in professional environments where people are often so busy trying to be right. You know, the the ego is so powerful. Our need to justify ourselves in, in the space that we are in often takes such precedence in our immediate response, our emotional reaction to things, that we often get the exact opposite of what we want out of our engagements with people because we're so busy trying to prove that we were right. That instead of going, what is going to give us the optimal outcome here? If I have to lose this battle to win the war, then I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. Let's focus on the bigger picture here. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's weird because my work at the rugby players organization, my players, which is something that I, I, I consulted for them and it's very behind the scenes, you know, it's, it's, it's not stuff that people associate me with, but I learned a lot from working for a very dynamic CEO there. His name is Eugene Henning. It's one of the best bosses I've ever worked for. And it's not something that he said, but it is in the practice of how he does his job the best explanation for how to deal with a very fraught environment, which is sport administration. There is so much ego involved in this highly charged male dominated environment, but also that is many, many environments at work, whether you're a pilot or a surgeon or an engineer or you work in the administration of a radio station, or whether you produce a TV show. This is something that I feel I've I've constantly come across. And uh, we were talking about another project in another meeting the other day. And I said, this was a clear example of where someone should have 
would would have realized if they had just taken a beat and said, do you know what? I don't need to be right in this. In this case, I need the results to be good. And if you look at what is going to help you win, sometimes you need to take the hit to the ego and mm. go, either I didn't execute this correctly, my intentions were good, but my execution wasn't right, or mm. my execution was as good as I could get it, but it, st it still wasn't good enough. Objectively speaking, I recognize now that my best effort didn't succeed here. But that doesn't mean that we can't win. I'm going to do this and this and this, and we're going to get this project over the line. Mm. You are dropping, there's like droplets of wow coming from you. I think we could talk for hours. Still. <laughs> um, uh, I know you're going to be sharing stuff on Instagram and I know you're on the radio at the moment. If people are looking for you, Alma, where is the best place for them to follow your journey? Okay. So um, Alma Capalma on Twitter is more opinion, more sport. And then Alma Capalma on Instagram is just fatting hat and photos of me and Liesl looking like Rex and, at radio <laughs> and photos of my new her and photos of me doing shows and uh, traveling the world co covering sport. So I think those are probably the, the two best places to catch up with me. Alma, they're, they're just because this is in my head now, not necessarily because I'm going to put it in the podcast, but there are three other things that I that I remember strongly with you. The one is Yin Yang Twins and Shake. <laughs> the second one is Tani Elvis. Yes. And then there was a phrase you used every afternoon when you came in after my show <laughs> and your show was about to start. Do you remember what you said? It's my turn. <laughs> yes, it is. Generally, my approach, like every morning when I get in, even at five in the morning, the team's like, shut up. I'm like, hello, hello, hello. I'm there full of beans. And they just like, turn it down. No one can deal with you. <laughs> Hello, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to Unstoppable and let me know how each episode resonates with you. You can drop me an email, hello at uncoverextraordinary.ca.za or, of course, connect via social media and in so doing, grow this unstoppable community. If you have a story or a testimony to share, please let me know and do share the podcast with someone you love. Unstoppable is produced by Uncover Extraordinary Medium. Check them out, www.uncoverextraordinary.co.za. Music by Eric Williams and Epidemic Sound and overseen by executive producer Ruenda Lewitz. You can join the Unstoppable community on Instagram at the Unstoppable Pod or on Twitter at Unstoppable underscore pod. We'll speak again soon. But until then, take care of yourself. <laughs>